Good morning. And uh, let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, and boy, do we need your wisdom and your, and your presence in our hearts and minds as we carry the truth forward. We want to do it in love, with grace, with compassion. We want to uh, uh, be wise enough not to get caught up in any of the, the traps out there that are, that are infecting so many hearts and minds in the world right now. Give us discernment as we study today. Give us love for those who would oppose us, and help us stand as bright lights in your king, for your kingdom in this world today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. All right, so we're doing ultimate rest. First paragraph. Have you ever felt that you were in the midst of a great battle, a kind of struggle between good and evil? Many, even secular people, have sensed this reality. And we feel that, we, th- that, and we feel that way because it's true. We are in a great battle between good and evil, between Christ, the good, and Satan, the bad. We all recognize we're in a, in a war, cosmic war. But is the war only between Christ and Satan? It is not only between them. Christ and Satan stand at the heads of two forces. And what, are the, what is the core issue in the war? God's law. Yeah, that's right. The knowledge of God, God's law. That's exactly right. Uh, Christ and Satan uh, stand uh, in, at the head of two opposing governments, if you will. Governments are based on two systems of law or rulership. God's kingdom, creatorship, law of love, how design law works and reality works, Satan's system, imperialism, imposed rules, coercive force. Two governments are at war based on two different types of law. And they directly impact the character of the rulers of the two systems. One is a sacrificial being who greater love is no man than he give his life for a friend. Who, he who was equal to God did not think equality with God was something to be grasped, but humbled himself in the form of a servant and the purpose of lifting up all those who have been damaged by sin versus the imperial view, which you rise over and use power to take from those beneath you to support yourself. Do we have to decide on, on who we're going to follow? Not just by the verbal declaration, I follow Christ, but by the methods we employ in how we live, the law that we take into our heart, in how we treat others. And will that have an impact on who we become? And what does that reveal? What I just said, what does that reveal about whose government is actually supreme? Why do we become like either Christ or Satan? There's a reason we do. Is it a legal process that we claimed a legal payment and then we get a legal declaration and we're legally accounted in a book to be like Christ? Or do we actually become like Christ? The law. The law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. We will become either more like Christ as we adore him, worship him, internalize him, accept his truths, align with him, choose him. We become more like him. Or if we value Satan's view of things and we like those methods and we choose those methods and we, and we identify with those principles, we become more like him. That reality is evidence that God's laws are supreme because that's how reality works. If we choose fear and selfishness, we solidify those attributes into our character and we become like Satan, eventually destroying the very faculties that God has given us to recognize truth and respond to love. We can burn them out of ourselves. We move past the point of being healed and transformed. And no amount of truth or love anymore has any healing impact on us. This is reality. And thus, even in the war, God's supremacy is revealed. Satan cannot win. Because Satan cannot create. Satan cannot sustain life. Satan cannot heal. He cannot restore. Satan can only break, destroy, and kill. There is nothing legal going on. It's all actual. 
second paragraph. It says, life then is really being played out on two levels. The great controversy between Christ and Satan is taking place on a global scale. In fact, even a, co- even a cosmic level. For in heaven is where it first began. Yet in the confusion of events, we can easily lose the big picture of God's escape plan for the world. Wars, political unrest, natural disasters can hold us uh, in helpless terror. That's what's happening right now. Terror messaging. Okay? But God's prophetic guidance can help us keep in mind the big picture and where we are going and how we will get there. We absolutely agree Agree. there's a war and that this war is more than just a human war, that there's a cosmic war and there are angel armies involved and that uh, uh, God's spirit is at work and that our struggles are not against flesh and blood but against rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of the dark world, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 6.12. Meaning, there are non-human forces operating outside of our space-time continuum that we can't physically interact with. We can't see them all. The, uh, they may interact with us. The angels appear from time to time. But we can't, on our own volition, interact on that level. We can't enter God's dwelling place. But does that mean because this is going on, there are spiritual forces involved, that the war is still actively being waged in heaven where God dwells, where Jesus stands right now? Or is this cosmic war with angel armies only being waged now on planet earth? Prior to the cross, we have evidence that in fact the war was still being waged in heaven. The book of Job angel, uh, uh, shows that Satan presented himself before God and the intelligences of, of heaven uh, to uh, launch his continued propaganda campaign to try to recruit more to his side, undermining God's authority and, and trustworthiness. But is that still happening today? Well, I'm going to share some insights. First, uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 69. And then we're going to go into Desire of Ages, starting in 758. From the first, the great controversy had been upon the law of God. Satan had sought to prove that God was unjust, that his law was faulty, and that the good of, for, and that the, good of the universe required it to be changed. In attacking the law, he aimed to overthrow the authority of its author. In the, in the controversy, it was to be shown whether the divine statutes were defective and subject, subject to change or perfect and immutable. What kind of law is subject to change? Exactly. Made up law, human law, uh, uh, rules, legislated law, edicts that you give out, um, executive orders. Mandates. Mandates. Okay. These are subject to change. Satan's attack from the beginning. God's law is made up rules like sinners make that require enforcement from the ruling authority. And, it's, and some of those rules aren't good for us. We need to change them. It's changeable. Let's change it. From the very beginning, this was the argument. And therefore, if that's the way the law works, God is the source of pain, suffering, and death. He can't be trusted. He'll punish you if you don't do what he says. He's a control freak. We have no freedom. This is our page 758. To the angels in the unfallen worlds, this is now speaking of Christ's words on the cross, it is finished. Focusing on that, place, what's the end of, end of the book? To the angels in the unfallen worlds, the cry, it is finished, had a deep significance. It was for them, as well as for us, that the great work of redemption had been accomplished. They, with us, share the fruits of Christ's victory. How do sinless beings share the fruits of Christ's death on the cross? How do they benefit from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Did they need a blood payment made for them? Did they benefit from the cross? Was it a legal benefit? Well, let's see what it was about. 
Not until the death of Christ was the character of Satan clearly revealed to the angels or to the unfallen worlds. The archapostate has so clothed himself with deception that even holy beings had not understood his principles. They had not clearly seen the nature of his rebellion. Christ was the truth, the word made flesh, the living embodiment of God, the one who in the fullness of God dwelt bodily. And what did Christ reveal in his human life? How did Christ respond to injustice? How did Christ wield power? When all power was given to him in John 13, how did he wield it? Washing dirty feet, even the feet of his betrayer. From whom did Christ demand worship? Whom did Christ compel and coerce to save lives, to be sure? From whom did Christ, uh, no, so, so, whom did Christ accuse? Whom did Christ afflict punishment upon? Do we see a different character lived out by Jesus than by any other human in history? Do we see a different law lived out? Do we see a different method of governing? Is this a lesson for us today? Continue on with the quote. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one cast a pebble to the earth, but he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only when there's really bad wickedness and God must use it to set things right. Ah. Only when people insist on, on uh, uh, being uh, uh, into depravity, then it's okay to compel. Only when they won't listen. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral. And truth and love are the prevailing power. This is one of the most important truths ever revealed. And one for which... All the saved will embrace and practice as we run into the final events before Christ comes. All the saved will practice the principles of truth and love and mercy. The principles only. They will not use compelling power. God wants our love. He wants our trust. He wants our devotion. He wants our loyalty. He wants our friendship. And you cannot get that by threatening people who don't give it. You can't get it. You only get rebellion. It was God's purpose to place things on an eternal basis of security. By? How would he do that? He's all-powerful. He's sovereign. He's the creator. How can he get things eternally secure? He can't use compelling power. It's only under Satan's government. Truth and love. Truth and love. By having his law written in hearts and minds that beings are so settled into the truth, so settled into love for God and others, so settled into the principles of liberty that they're genuine friends of God, they would rather die than betray him or live out the principles of Satan. The law in the New Covenant is written where? Hearts and minds. Continue with the quote. It was God's purpose to place things on an eternal basis of security. And in the councils of heaven, it was decided that time must be given for Satan to develop the principles which were the foundation of his system of government. He had claimed that these were superior to God's principles. Time was given for the working of Satan's principles that they might be seen by the heavenly universe. What are Satan's principles? Lies, okay, sure. Imperial law rules compelling power, coercive force. And, and Satan's principles have been demonstrated through his history to lead to what? When Satan's principles are practiced, what's the outcome? Destruction, pain, suffering, death. The rule of law imposed coercive force. These are the governments of the world, and they're describing the scripture as beastly. Uh, Desire of Ages 761, continuing the same uh, chapter, just a couple paragraphs down. 
Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. This is the crucifixion. He saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of heavenly beings. Henceforth, his work was restricted. Whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer await the angels as they came from the heavenly courts and before them accuse Christ's brethren of being clothed in the garments of blackness and the defilement of sin. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. What broke the last link of sympathy? What was it that broke that last link of sympathy between the unfallen beings and fallen Lucifer, who they may have loved and been friends with for millions of years? They saw him for who he was. The revelation of truth. The truth of God's character was revealed. The evil corruption of selfishness was revealed in Satan. That's exactly right. The revelation of truth. Why was Satan's work then restricted? to the planet Earth after the cross. Was it a force shield? Was it God's sovereign power? Remember the kind of war we're in. It's a war of ideas. After the cross, all the intelligent beings were settled into the loyalty about God and settled into the perversity and corruption of Satan. And they no longer had any sympathy. They would not listen to him. He was restricted by the reality of the rest of the universe no longer being willing to consider anything he had to say. So the only place he finds intelligent beings that are still willing to give him consideration, value his perspectives, practice his methods, embrace his principles is planet Earth. That's right. That's why the war is being waged here. That's why he's restricted. Uh, continue with the quote. Yet Satan was not then destroyed. The angels did not even then understand all that was involved in the great controversy. What? What? Didn't we just read that all the last sympathy was broken? They, they, they're settled now into their trust of Jesus and the Father? So what else was there? Wasn't the issue about who's telling the truth? Who are you going to trust? Wasn't that it? No, that wasn't it. And it's exclusivity, meaning the totality of it. It isn't enough for us to be eternally secure to believe Jesus is telling the truth. We must also understand why this is so. It isn't enough to be secure to believe your math teacher knows the right answers and has given you the right answer. I trust my math teacher. It's the right answer. To be secure in your own self, you need to know why it's the right answer. They now saw that Christ was trustworthy and Satan was not, but they still didn't understand all the mechanisms and principles and reasons why. Continuing on with the quote. The principles at stake were to be more fully revealed. And for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. Man, as well as angels, must see the contrast between the prince of light and the prince of darkness. He must choose whom we will serve. Have you ever considered it was for our sake that Satan wasn't destroyed at the cross? That's what this author says. Why was his, why is that for our sake that his existence was continued? Because we must decide whom we will serve. We must decide for ourselves the difference between the methods of God, the principles of God, and the methods and principles of Satan. If we can't see this difference when it's subtle, then what will a God of love allow to happen? If you can't figure out which is the right and which is the wrong when the issues are soft, subtle, what will a God of love allow happen? Diminishing subtlety. Diminish subtlety, which means if you take that and say it in another way, allow more and more evidence 
more truth, more obvious differences, more manifestations of Satan's powers to come forth. So the differences become more and more obvious for those who are sleeping at the wheel. And in case you think I'm criticizing, in the parable, they're all sleeping. They're all sleeping. The righteous and, and, the, and the, the wise and the foolish virgins are all sleeping. So, so I'm not criticizing those who are sleeping because all were sleeping. The point being is God allows the events to accelerate to give us greater and greater evidence to discern and decide. And then the son of righteousness is described in the time of Malachi is rising with healing, like rising like the sun, S-U-N, the S-U-N of righteousness, rising with healing in his beams or rays. There's an in, not only is there increasing manifestation of Satan's power, there's an increasing revelation of God's character and methods. They're both rising. It's becoming more and more obvious. The two principles are becoming more and more clear. And we have to decide who are you going to align with? Who are you going to practice? There's a hand somewhere. I was just saying, as things get worse, it's really out of love. Out of what? Out of love. Out of love. Yes, God, out of love, allows us to happen, to, to help free us from complacency. So the, uh, this, this rising, this, this thing's becoming more obvious of Satan's method is the rise of the beast of Revelation, a system built completely on imposed law, coercion, infliction of punishment, under the guise of seeking to make the world better, to improve lives, to, to save lives. So what was the specific concept that we all needed to understand, that the humans, that man needed to understand more clearly that required Satan's existence to be continued? Here's the next, very next words from the author. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be the God of truth and justice. This is what we don't understand. The church still doesn't understand it. The church is still teaching that God, in order to be just, he must use his power to punish sin. Why? Because the church still embraces Rome's view of law, that God's law functions like Rome, like any human government made-up rules which require authoritarian enforcement and infliction of punishment. This is the beast of Revelation. God could not be just, Satan argued, and yet show mercy to the sinner. What is the basis of this allegation? What kind of justice is this? What law is this based upon? Again, it's all about imposed law versus design law. When you understand design law, you understand justice is doing what's right or just, which is healing and restoring people back to harmony with God's law so they have life. That's the just and right thing to do. Can you know what the quote? But even as a sinner, man was in a different position than that of Satan. Different position how? Different legal position? Or different position in objective reality? Note how. Note how we're in a different position. Lucifer in heaven had sinned in the light of God's glory. Timus, no other created being, was given a revelation of God's love, understanding the character of God, knowing his goodness. Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. There was no more that God could do to save him. Why? Was Jesus unwilling to save Lucifer? Was Jesus unwilling to give his life for Lucifer? Was Jesus unwilling to pay some legal penalty? Didn't we just read at the beginning of this par the chapter, or the, our section here, didn't we just read how the death of Christ was for angels and unfallen beings as well as for humans? So he gave his life for angels and unfallen beings as well as for us. Yet, there was nothing he could do for Lucifer. Oh, and if you want a Bible text for that, all things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. Colossians 1, uh, chapter 1, I think it's verse 20, maybe 18. So did God, love, did God love Lucifer less than humans then? Is that the reason why? Was God playing favorites? No. 
It was because Lucifer had destroyed in himself the capacity to respond to truth and love. He had seen, he'd understood, he'd participated in God's love, uh, and, and then he rejected it. Thus, he changed himself, hardening his own heart, corrupting his character. This change is, again, design law at work. Just the same way Pharaoh hardened his own heart. When truth is presented, every person must decide whether to accept the truth or reject the truth. When we reject the truth, we become a little hardened. We become less capable of recognizing it. If more truth comes when it does, we have an opportunity to repent, but that requires humbling of ourselves, acknowledging the fact that we rejected truth earlier and that we were believing lies earlier, replacing the lies with more truth, and then we can actually move. And we see examples of people. I think Paul, Saul of Tarsus was, was holding on to lies, and on the Damascus Road, he accepted truth, and, and it changed him. There was truth revealed to him before the Damascus Road. Stephen was revealing truth then before Damascus Road, but he wasn't accepting it yet. He was resisting it. So we have examples that you can resist truth for a while and still have new truth come and accept it and be transformed by it. But if you persist in, resi- in, in, in truth after truth after truth, you keep resisting and rejecting like Pharaoh did, then your heart becomes hardened and eventually destroys in you the very faculties that recognize truth and respond to it. And there's nothing more God can do. That's why Lucifer is in a different position. There is nothing more. There's no more revelation of God's character that he didn't comprehend and already reject that could win him back. Continue on with the quote. But man was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistry, the height and the depth of the love of God he did not know. For him there was hope in a legal payment of a blood sacrifice so the father will have his anger and uh, propitiated and not lash out in punitive justice. Amen. No, it's never penal legal. That's the human law model. It's a lie. No, listen. For him, there is hope and a knowledge of God's love. But beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. What do we need? We, need, we don't need a legal payment. We don't need a legal solution. It's not legal. It's reality-based, folks. It's how reality works. Do we love and trust God? Do we reject the methods and principles of Satan, the rule of law that the whole church has bought from Rome and the whole world is intoxicated on that wine? And do we accept the living principles of our creator God restored into our hearts so that we live in harmony with God, loving our neighbors as ourselves? Continuing with the quote. Through Jesus, God's mercy was manifest to men, but mercy does not set aside justice. Oh, no. Oh, no, there's justice. What does this mean? What law lens do you hear the word justice through? If you're still thinking through human law, justice is holding accountable, making sure the the wicked get their just desserts. They have to be punished. If you don't punish, they just get away with it. That's human law. God's law, design law, What's the just thing to do? It's justifying. It's making things right. Making it right. Fixing what's broken. Restoring and healing what's damaged. That's right. Uh, The law reveals the attributes of God's character. And not a jot or tittle could be changed to meet man in his fallen condition. Why? Because they're the laws upon which life are built. It'd be like saying the law of respiration cannot be changed to meet a drowning man underwater. You can't, you can't change the law of respiration so he can breathe underwater. You have to put him in harmony with the law, get him out from underwater. That's why the law can't be changed. God did not change his law, but he sacrificed himself in Christ for man's redemption. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. In Christ, restoring in humanity, the humanity of Jesus, God's design, law, and principles for life. And thus the human species reconciled, put back in harmony with God in the person of Jesus Christ. The law, you know this quote, I've, this might be my, the one quote I, I, re, I, I, I cite more often than any other quote. So, but it's right in the middle of, this, of what we're reading. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character, but, and man has, has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law, but Christ coming to earth as man lived a holy life, developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Yes, he is the new second Adam. He is the new head of the species human. He is the one human being in in whom sin never took root. He is the one human being who lived out through human 
capacities, abilities, human brain, human strength, the law of God perfectly. He put the species human back perfectly in harmony with God. And in him, the fullness of God dwells bodily. So he stands as the representative head of the species. And thus we have remission of sins that are passed through, what does the other says? Through the application of the blood to our records in heaven. The forbearance of God. Through the forbearance of God. Nothing legal going on. Through the forbearance of God. More than this. It's much more. It's much more. It's, it's good news to know that God is not keeping a record of our sins as it says in Second Corinthians. I think it's chapter 5. It's good news to know that. And love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, keeps no record of wrongs. It's good news. He's, it's, it's forbearing. But that's not sufficient. Just because he doesn't keep record, that'd be like saying the doctor doesn't keep record of all your symptoms. Okay, that's good news. He's not going to punish me for all my symptoms. Good. Glad to know it. Does that mean you're healthy and well? So it's good news to know that he's not up there keeping a record of all our sins to throw in our face when we meet him. He's not doing that. But more than this, the author says, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Wow. Think that through. This is reality. Transformational, recreational, setting hearts and minds right. It's literal. It's not metaphorical. Continue with the quote. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. God can be just and the justifier of them that believe in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us, substitution, so that we might become, become the righteousness of God. Not be declared even though we're not. That's a fraud. That's a lie. It keeps Christians crippled. If you saw someone drowning, is it right and just to pull them from the water and administer CPR to revive them? That's a metaphor for saving us from sin, pulling us from the waters of sin and breathing the breath of life into us, the character of Christ, a new heart, the right spirit. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me so that we actually are resurrected to a new life in Christ and the old is gone. Continuing on. God's love has been expressed in his justice no less than his mercy. Mercy, God, not abandoning us in sin, uh, not retaliating us, not keeping a list of sins against us to punish. That's mercy. Justice, doing what is right by sending Christ to destroy sin and restore God's law into humanity and being the source through which we can experience that healing. That's the just thing to do. I just wrote a blog, Justification by Faith, that went up on Thursday on our website. And if you haven't read it, check it out. It's Justification by Faith through the Healing Model or Design Law Lens. Justice is the foundation of his throne and the fruit of his love. It has been Satan's purpose to divorce mercy from truth and justice. How does he seek to divorce mercy from truth and justice? By getting us to believe in Poe's law lie. As soon as you believe the imposed law lie, then the Godhead is split. They're not unified anymore. We have an authoritarian father figure who must enforce the law. We have a self-sacrificing, loving Savior who's willing to take the punishment for us. And then he stands up there in heaven pleading his blood to the Father to persuade the Father not to kill us or in some other mechanistic way, applying it in a way so that just God, who is the source of justice, uh, is, uh, uh, will have, be influenced by the merciful Savior who will pay his blood to him on our behalf. It splits justice and mercy. By his life and death, Christ proved that God's justice did not destroy his mercy, but that sin could be forgiven and the law, and that the law is righteous and can be perfectly obeyed. Satan's charges were refuted. By how? By actually cleaning up the problem, fixing it, getting rid and exterminating the infection of fear and selfishness, by restoring perfect, godly, righteous love into the humanity that Jesus took upon himself. It also refutes that God had to punish sin because at the cross, God did not use any power against his son at all. 
even though you will find in essentially every Christian organization, because they accept the Roman view of law, almost every Christian church, including theologians in the Adventist church, teach that God, in order to be just, killed Jesus at the cross. It's a lie. We just read earlier in this same thing we're reading right now, at the cross, Satan revealed himself as a murderer by shedding the blood of the Son of God. God did not kill his son at the cross. That's a lie. But it's a lie that people who believe the penal view must teach because in their view, the so- and when you have human law, the sovereign has to execute justice upon the lawbreaker. And as our substitute, God had to do that in order to be just. It's a great perversity. And it's simply not true. That lies are entirely early in, in the history where uh, when people say Jesus or God killed the lamb to provide the clothes. Yes, they will also take the story in early in Genesis where, um, where it, uh, um, the skins were provided to Adam and Eve and, uh, and say that God killed a lamb there. There's no inspired record that actually says God killed a lamb. There's none. It just says that God... And I never heard that God killed his son. I heard people say it, but I did not hear it from the sermons that I listened to most of my life. Yeah, I, I have those references, and if you, want to, if you want those references, I have a whole long list of them in my book, um, The God-Shaped Brain. Uh, they're also in our website. Go to our media section. Go to um, uh, the uh, God in Your Brain uh, three-part lecture series, lecture two, um, Designer or Dictator, an exploration of God's law and justice. Uh, I give the references from essentially a, a wide range of Christian organizations, including reading from the 27 Fundamental Beliefs of the Adventist Church, which actually state these things, and the, Re- and the Adventist Review and other uh, and, and Ministry Magazine, uh, publishing, published by the Adventist Church. So, um, again, the, these, these ideas are out there. They're, in fact, every Christian organization. You can't escape it as long as you hold to the imposed law view. If you hold the imposed law view and you believe that God's law functions like human law, you have to believe that it was God's justice being, uh, and, and they'll use the word justice, they'll use the word wrath, but they've actually gone and actually said in places that God had to kill a son at the cross in order for justice to be served. It's all a lie. It's all based on, again, again Satan's lie about God's law. So, continue on with the quote. Another deception was now brought forward. History now repeats itself. Here, here we go. Uh, Satan declared that mercy destroyed justice and that the death of Christ abrogated the Father's law. What kind of law can be rescinded, changed, and abrogated? Imposed law. It's just another form of the same lie. Another form. Now that, now that Jesus paid the penalty, the law no longer applies. It's all been paid. Okay, That only works. It's like now that Jesus has done CPR on somebody who's drowning and they're breathing again, they don't actually have to breathe anymore. They can go underwater without a, without a scuba tank and they can live. No, they can't. The laws of respiration still apply. The law is not done away with because it's the law of life. Had it been possible for the law to be changed or abrogated, then Christ need not have died. It was uh, because the law was changeless because man could be saved only through obedience to its precepts that Jesus was lifted up on the cross. Yet the very means by which Christ established the law, Satan represents as destroying it. Twofold, again, declaring that it's an imposed rule, and therefore rules can be changed, and so changes come to God's law. Or for those who value the law and still say, we're going to keep all the commandments of God because they can't change the commandments, they still teach that idea through imperialism and that God is the source of imposed rules. And if you don't keep his law, then he'll still punish you. Still teaching the, the live room. Here, now listen to where we go now. Here will come the last conflict of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. What's it going to be over? God's law and how it functions. And where are we today? Christians fighting a battle over God's law. Not the day of worship, but whether God's law is design law, how reality works, or whether it's a system of rules which require compelling, coercing, and punishing. That's the battle that's going on. Continuing on with the quote. By substituting human law for God's law, Satan will seek to control the world. Whoa! We have something going on in the world right now, worldwide. Every nation in the world. And they are making imperial laws, edicts, mandates, rules to compel and coerce. 
It's not simply changing a commandment. It's getting people to accept imperial law as a method of living and treating your neighbor. Men will surely set up their law. Continuing the quote. Men will surely set up their laws to counterwork the law of God. They will seek to compel the consciences of others. And in their zeal to enforce these laws, they will oppress their fellow man. Are we living Bible prophecy right now, folks? Use of compelling power, which is always and only found under Satan's government. This is what's happening in the world, and far too many Christians are going along with it. I can't tell you the number of Christians that are emailing me because I'm standing up for liberty. We should be compelling people, they say. We must do this to save lives. I'm going to tell you, you you can't win God's cause using Satan's methods. And for those who think it's righteous to compel the consciences of others in order to save lives, well, I thought of a Bible verse. Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. Cast out demons. Perform miracles. Probably miracles of healing. In other words, we're out here saving lives. And we force people against their will to get the jab because we knew that you wanted to save lives. And we know those people were ignorant. They just didn't understand the sciences. We know it. And they're not scientific. And the jab isn't a religious issue. It's a science issue. And we knew that you would be honored and that your name would be uplifted if we coerced and compelled and forced people in order to save lives. And Jesus will respond, Get ye away from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I'm telling you, folks, this is an issue of character. It's an issue of methods. It's an issue of principle. It is not about the virus, nor is it about the vaccine. Those are tools. Those are merely opportunities to raise fear and to insert Satan's methods into people's hearts and how they live. Continuing on. The warfare against God's law, which was begun in heaven will be continued until the end of time. Every human will be tested. Obedience or disobedience is the question to be decided by the whole world. All will be called to choose between the law of God and the laws of men. Law of God, truth, love, freedom, leaving others free. Law of God, law of men. No, in order to save lives, we're going to force you to do something against your conscience. And it's the law. So our patients are wearing thin. Remember, it was the legal and the law in Germany to imprison and kill Jews. And it was illegal to hide them. In America, it was legal to enslave blacks at one time, and it was illegal to hide them and help them escape. Just because something is legal doesn't mean it's moral, ethical, or in harmony with God's principles. What does this author say? That the warfare against God's law, which began in heaven, will continue to the end of time. Every person will be tested. Obedience or disobedience is the question. All will be called to choose between the law of God and the laws of men. Here, the dividing line will be drawn. There will be but two classes. Every character will be fully developed. And all will show whether they have chosen the side of loyalty or that of rebellion. The paragraph is about developing of character. Character of love like Jesus. We sacrifice for others. We present truth and love. We leave free. Or character like the beast, where we will use compelling power to, conf- to enforce and coerce conformity. This is the test we all must face. The final deception will be so subtle that if it's possible, the very elect will be deceived. How? Because it will set up as a law that is proclaimed and declared to be for the good of all, for the saving of lives or the protecting of others or the saving of the planet. And those who won't comply will be presented as the danger, a threat to those who are complying. And we must take liberty first, 
punish with fines, restrict travel, censor speech. Then we must imprison. Then we must, even at some point, declare they should be killed because we must save lives. Understand the irrational and ungodly things that are happening in this world right now. If you're an evidence-based thinker, it becomes real obvious that what's happening in this world is not what they claim is happening. Learn how to discern the difference between words and actions. I have patients that are, are married to abusing spouses, and the abusing spouse has a, they all, there's a certain psychological warfare they perpetrate upon them in addition to the physical abuse. And the psychological warfare diminishes their, their, their autonomy, capacity, and their own confidence in themselves. Psychological warfare goes this way when they're being abused. There's, there's, there's two lines of messaging. One, you're stupid, and you don't know anything. And two, I'm doing this for your good and because I love you. Understand what's happening from our federal government right now is exactly those tactics. You're stupid. You're not scientific. You don't know anything. And we're going to do this for your good because we love you and want to save lives. It is perverse. It's abuse. It's wrong. And sadly, millions and millions buy into it. Continuing on with the quote. The end will come. Yeah. So after these two classes have been formed, two classes are formed. She said, they, everyone will be tested on this issue. And the, depending on the message you're willing to, to apply it in the way you treat other people, your character is formed. And as the characters are formed and the two groups are settled, then here's what comes next. Then the end will come. God will vindicate his law and deliver his people. Satan and all who have joined with him in rebellion will be cut off. Sin and sinners will perish root and branch. Why will they, why will they perish? Cut off from? From the source of life. That's exactly right. Continuing on with the quote. This is not an act of arbitrary power on the part of God. What's arbitrary power? That's human governments. We use power to, arbitrate, to inflict a consequence that you wouldn't naturally reap. Okay? They're being cut off and dying. Not an act of arbitrary power. God is not inflicting punishment for sin as the imperial law liars teach. This is not an act of arbitrary power <clears throat> on the part of God. The rejectors of his mercy reap that which they have sown. God is the fountain of life, and when one chooses the service of sin, he separates from God and thus cuts himself off from life. This is design law. Law of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. There's no life outside of union with God. God gives them existence for a time that they may develop their character, reveal their principles. This accomplished, they receive the result of their own choice. By a life of rebellion, Satan and all who unite with him have placed themselves so out of harmony with God that his very presence is to them a consuming fire. The glory of him who is love will destroy them. At the beginning of the great controversy, the angels did not understand this. What did they not understand? How design law functioned? Where life originates? What's required for us to sustain ourselves in life? They did not understand. Had God allowed Satan and his angels to reap this conclusion in the beginning, Satan's lie would have taken root. Oh, God just used power to kill him. Continuing on the quote. Had Satan and his host been left to reap the full result of their sin, <laughs> that's the words used here, it's just exactly right, they would have perished, but it would not have been apparent to the heavenly beings that, that this was the inevitable result of sin. A doubt of God's goodness would have remained in their minds as an evil seed and produced a deadly fruit of sin and woe. And the entire Christian church is teaching that God, in order to be just, 
must use his power to torture and kill. And what do we have? Evil seed producing deadly fruit of sin and woe. But not so when the great controversy is ended. Then the plan of redemption will have been completed. The character of God is revealed to all created intelligences. The precepts of his law are seen to be perfect and immutable. Do you understand that in this time in history, God is is calling on people to be his, you want to use the word light bearers? You want to use the word image bearers? We are to bear the image of God to have his law reproduced in our hearts, to be living representatives of his methods, to, to take his character into the world and how we treat others. We present the truth in love. We leave free. We don't coerce. Sunday's lesson. We just finished Sabbath. A vision of the end is about the future and what the future holds for the believer. And it refers us to Revelation 21, 1 and 2, where it promises us a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. So from a biblical worldview, what does the future hold for the righteous? What happens to this planet from a biblical worldview? What happens to it? It's destroyed and and recreated a paradise for our, our home. And therefore, is there anything we can do that, that can stop that outcome? No, no it's, it's coming no matter what we do. Does that mean because that's going to be the future that we should be careless stewards, pollute, destroy, or irrespective, uh, we have responsibility to be good stewards and care for what God has provided? Does, does, does our caring for the planet, being good stewards, prevent the destruction of the planet and its recreation? No. So understand, from a biblical worldview, the earth is going to be destroyed and recreated. Is the biblical worldview the predominant worldview in Western society today? What's the what predominant worldview? Godless green. It's the godless green worldview. That's what it is. It's an evolutionary worldview that we evolved from lower life forms, and there is no God, and there is no promised future of a new heaven and a new earth. So, for those who reject the Bible, what does the future hold? What is their worldview envisioned for them? No God, no recreation, no new earth, no heaven. What's the future hold in a godless worldview? Overpopulation, depletion of all of the resources, and a mass extinction event. Extinction event. Unless we do something to stop that. That's what the future of the godless see. And understand, the people in power in this world right now, they're godless. They're not pagan in the sense of they, uh, Baal worshipers. They're not worshiping some false god that they are trying to honor. They believe themselves that the, they're the highest beings on the planet. There's nothing higher than humans on the planet. There's nothing higher than humans as far as we know in the universe. No, they, they think there may be aliens out there. They're hoping for it. But, but right now, we're the highest beings in the universe. And it's up to us to save ourselves. We must save ourselves. We must t- build our tower of Babel. Get us to heaven. How will we save this planet? Because we don't act. Overpopulation. What's the prediction? 50 years or less. The population keeps doubling. It would be beyond sustaining but from the planet, and we will have mass extinction event. But we'll have massive plagues, so we won't have to worry about overpopulation. <laughs> so, what, what would, if you were in power and you held the world's view, the godless view, and you had power, and you could implement action plan, what kind of actions would you take? What action? Seriously. You believe that there is no God. You see there's seven, over seven billion people in the world. We're exploiting and polluting, and we're overpopulating. We're depleting the resources. Population control. Self-preservation. What actions would you take? Would you take actions to try to curb the population? And would you do that simply through loving, compassionate education of the dilemma and leave people free? to be persuaded in their own mind to control their fertility and to limit the number of children they have, get volunteers who don't want to have family. Would you, would you do it in a very gentle, truth, love, and leave people free way? Or would you uh, understand that, um, oh, you might get some c- converts to that, but 
You're not persuading the world. Uh, do you think the, uh, the Islamic world is going to buy into that and stop all the children they're producing? And many others because of their worldview? No, you're not. So, so if you really believe this and you have power, simple persuasion isn't going to work. What would you need to do? What might it look like? Might, uh, might the government actually put restrictions with penalties and fines on the number of children people have? We've never seen that anywhere in the world, have we? Oh, we've already even seen that, haven't we? Interesting. Would, would the government restrict, the, uh, would, would, we, would we make easy access to abortion part of it? Would we, uh, would we uh, make easy access to various contraception part of it? I'm sure. What about impacting human sexuality through whatever means possible, fertility, gender identity, media and social messaging that targets children and adolescents to get in same-sex relationships? Would that be part of it? Possible? About continuous wars. Well, you got it right in my notes. What about wars? Wars so we can kill people and curb the population. What about carbon emissions and, and the whole climate change thing and controlling and using carbon credits to uh, affect social structure and sovereignty and eventual um, uh, resources that can be used which will impact population growth? What about biological agents? I don't know, maybe human-engineered viruses? Uh, we don't have the technology to actually engineer a virus, do we? That could never happen. And certainly if it happened, it would only be with responsible people who would always keep it in a lab and never let it out into the population. And then if it got into the population, we'd see very responsible behaviors from our government. So our government would never bring in tens of thousands of illegal immigrants who are infected with some virus and spread them all over the country while they're telling us they want to stop the spread of the virus. That would never happen. Would resources need to be managed? Would people be valued with inalienable rights and protect their individual rights, or would people become to be viewed as commodities that can be managed for the benefit of the whole? Do we see a, a, a philosophical landscape shift happening in the world where people and your individual rights are not as valued anymore that you need to comply for the good of the whole? In fact, uh, a, a president of the United States, I think it was yesterday, I think it was yesterday, was it yesterday, was the employment announcement, was that Thursday? Yesterday. yesterday announced his words, freedom doesn't matter. His words. Freedom, your freedom doesn't matter. That's what he said. Think that through. Would there be investment in science designed to accelerate human evolution, either through genetic engineering or cybernetic enhancements? Oh, we don't see that happening, do we? Yes, that's actively happening. Would people who value the biblical worldview need to be vilified and declared enemy? Would the principles of autonomy and liberty need to be protected or undermined? As I just mentioned, undermined. So do you view the future from a biblical worldview? Or are you buying into the godless green? Understand in the biblical worldview, people are more valuable than the planet. In the godless worldview... The planet is more valuable than the people and we must sacrifice some of the people to save the planet so we can save the species. Yes. If you look at pagan religions in the past, they valued the dead more than the living and now we're valuing the future more than the present. And the living, the people that are living now are the people that we should be caring for and loving and making sure they have what they need. Well said. Thank you. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the truth that you have revealed to your people. If we'd only take the time to keep you at the center, to keep your principles 
uh, if, uh, foremost in our hearts and minds. We ask that your spirit will enlighten our minds, that your spirit will take your law, write it upon our hearts and minds. Give us the, the peace and the strength and the confidence to express your truths in the most winsome and loving ways and to reach out and advance uh, your cause at this time in history. We see the sun of righteousness is rising and more and more truth of your godly kingdom is being revealed, but at the same time, so is the the powers of your enemy are arising on this earth. And we see more and more corruption and more and more abuse and more and more violations of your principles happening under the guise of so-called justice. We pray for discernment. We pray for wisdom. We pray for the ability to be more effective. We ask for your opening of avenues and bringing more workers to the field. We desperately need them. We thank you now in your holy name. Amen.